Thanks for checking out this Church in the City podcast. For more information, please visit www.churchinthecity.us. All right, let's turn in our Bibles, if we can, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. We're continuing on in our series uh, called uh, Citizens. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to pray just before we get started. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to open up your word. We thank you for the incredible time of worship that we had. Thank you for your presence that is here. Thank you that you so desire to continue to minister to us. Lord, it's not that the ministry starts now. The ministry has already begun, Lord God. The, the, the first song that we sang, you, as we were lifting up our voices, you were here ministering to us. And, and I thank you for that. I thank you that you, you love us. You love us deeply. You love us as a father. Thank you, Father, that you sent your son to die on the cross. Jesus, thank you for your obedience to the cross. And, and thank you for sending the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we, we honor your presence here. We welcome your presence here. And we ask for you to continue to, to minister and, and, and uh, massage the word of God into our hearts. And uh, I pray that your will be done over the next uh, 40 minutes or so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start um, my sermon um, just, to, uh, just to extend an, an apology that I, I felt convicted of uh, from the sermon I preached two weeks ago. This has got nothing to do with today, but um, towards the end of my last sermon two weeks ago, I was uh, uh, throwing out an altar call, uh, extending an invitation to people who, who might not know Jesus uh, to respond to the gospel. And I said, um, in that moment, I said, you might not fully understand what, uh, what was gone down today. And then I said this rather silly statement. I said, I don't even fully understand what I was preaching on today. And that w- I was trying to be lighthearted. I was trying to be fun. And it just, I felt I really undercut everything that, the God, that God had done um, in that morning. And I was incredibly convicted of that. So I just wanted to apologize. Um, it was an unnecessary statement. And um, just felt I needed to say that before we get into the word this morning. I started off the Ephesians series um, a number of weeks ago quoting a 17th century Puritan by the name of uh, John Owen. And uh, this quote that I'm going to mention wasn't specifically written uh, for this Ephesians series, but I really do think it captures the heart of what God um, is doing in us. And I think really what Paul is trying to communicate to us through this particular book. And the quote goes like this, our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. And essentially what John Owen was getting at was that we don't, as Christians, fully understand who we are in Jesus and what it means to be citizens of heaven. And I think that, in essence, is what Paul is trying to communicate to us through this book. We've taken the the, the last four or five weeks to, to unpack some of these incredible truths of what it means to be citizens of heaven what it means to be in Christ. Paul has helped us understand um, in the opening few verses of, of, the, of the, the, the origin of God's plan for us to be citizens. And that is that it's found in the very heart of God. Uh, this, this plan that God has is to bring us under the headship of Jesus. Uh, after that, Paul uh, helped us understand how do we find a, a revelation of the citizenship. And we find that by praying to God. Paul says in verse 17, 18, and also 19 of chapter 1, that, that we lift our voices to, to God, the, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for a, a, an understanding, a revelation of Jesus, a spirit of wisdom and revelation to know him better. 
After that, in the early part of chapter 2, Paul helps us understand uh, how do we become citizens. And we become citizens when God saves us. It's as simple as that. God saves us. And he saves us by grace through faith. And both grace and faith are a gift from him. Towards the second part of uh, chapter 2, Paul unpacks the reality of what it means to be citizens. And we find this incredible verse in the end of chapter, uh, end of chapter 2. And in him you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God is not saving individuals so much as he's saving his people to then be joined together, to be cemented together as building blocks into this local church, into a, a local community where God dwells by his by his in, in, incredible presence. And then last week, Paul, uh, Paul uh, James unpacked a little bit of what the impact is of this amazing citizenship. And look at, at verse 10 and 11 of chapter 3. He says, uh, Paul says, God's intent is that through the church, uh, God's people, his manifold or multifaceted wisdom should be made known to the rulers and to the authorities. Paul wants to take us, and he will very soon take us to the place where he begins to unpack some of the practical realities of all this amazing truth. This is not just a book of theory. This is not just a book of theology. But Paul is laying the groundwork for strong theology so that eventually he can begin to say, uh, all right, now that we've got the theology in us, what do we do with it? In in verse 1 of chapter 4, which we're going to tackle next week, Paul says, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this calling of being citizens. And, he, and Paul begins to expound on what it means to practically outwork the implications of citizenship. But there's one piece that is still missing from Paul's kind of groundwork or, or the laying down of good theology, and it's this piece that we're going to speak about today. Paul wants to make sure that what we've learned becomes an experience in our lives. Paul wants us to understand the experience of citizenship. And that's what we're going to have a look at today. And so in verse 14, Paul starts, he says, for this reason, this is actually the the second time that Paul has attempted to get to the conclusion of his theology. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, he starts in exactly the same way. Look at uh, at verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of the Gentiles, And then he gets a little sidetracked. Paul goes off on a preaching tangent and starts to explain a little bit about suffering and why he's imprisoned. The fact that that, that God has given given him this amazing revelation, and that's the reason why, why he's facing persecution from the Jews, because he's preaching this incredible gospel to the Gentiles. Um, And then right at the end of chapter 3, sorry, right at the end of uh, verse 13 of that section, Paul says, I ask you, therefore... Not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Right there, can I just say, Paul has completely justified, given a theological basis for preaching tangents and closing sermons multiple times. Um, so if I, if I say finally, or kind of say this is my conclusion, and 15 minutes later I'm still talking, Paul did it, and so I'm in good company. So finally, Paul gets to his point in verse 14. He's, he's, he's bringing this section of theology to a close. And let's read together from verse 14. He says this, for, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth 
derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, or in some translations it says far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever Amen. Paul didn't want the Ephesian Christians to to get distracted by the external stuff that they were facing. Even the external stuff and the external suffering and and struggle and hardship that, that Paul was facing. Paul didn't want those things to distract these Ephesian Christians from from grabbing hold of the experience of God. And I want to say, friends, the same is true for us. We must be careful that we don't allow external difficulties and external hardships and and tough seasons that we go through to detract uh, from the opportunity that we have to experience God. And and what we're going to see this morning is that Paul, Paul doesn't go after the external things. Paul goes after the issue of the heart. Paul prays that they would experience a a, a time in God where God's power by the Holy Spirit would strengthen their inner man. And can I suggest, friends, that is the priority of our prayer life or should be the priority of our prayer life. Nothing wrong with praying for our external circumstances. Nothing wrong in terms of praying for other things that are out there. But let me tell you, when we get a revelation or we get an experience of God strengthening our hearts, strengthening our inner man by his spirit, we'll be able to face any external circumstance with a, with a sense of peace and a sense of rest and a sense of understanding what God's heart is in all of this. And so I really do believe this is a, this is a passage of scripture that is applicable to us all because we all face the, the, the distraction or the overwhelming sense of, 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 of difficult seasons that we might be going through. Quick outline of what we're going to be looking at. Firstly, who does Paul pray to? And it might seem obvious, but I want to take some time just explaining who does Paul pray to. Secondly, what specifically does Paul pray for? And then we're going to end off with just some application. How do we respond to this incredible text? So firstly, who does Paul pray to? And we can look in verse 14 and 15. Paul says this. He says, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Before we get to the the who, the father, just notice that phrase, I kneel before the father. It was Jewish custom in the time to pray standing up. And, And there were only a few occasions in the Bible where we get reference of people praying, kneeling down or lying before the father. And it's meant to signify just the weight and the seriousness and the significance of the prayer. When Jesus was the night before, he gave his life in the garden of Gethsemane, weeping and and crying out before God. It said that Jesus fell prostrate before the Father. In the book of Acts, where where Stephen is about to be martyred, he kneels and begins to cry out to God. And so I want you to grab hold of the significance and the weight of this prayer that that Paul is, is praying. Firstly, we see that Paul is praying to God the Father. Paul is praying to God the Father. 
Now, I know when I mention the word father, I'm sure across this room, it evokes a range of emotions and feelings. I'm sure some of you in this room have had the privilege of, of being fathered by an incredible earthly father who's given you or shown you or revealed to you something of God's heart. And unfortunately, on the other end of that spectrum, there might be some of you here who've been abandoned by your earthly father or even abused by your earthly father. And so your concept or grasp of, of God the Father is a difficult one. I want to say I, I, I don't have the answers as to why some have experienced good, have good experiences and some bad experiences, but, but I want to I trust by the Holy Spirit that by God's power here today, God would all bring us to that place where we can learn to approach God as Father because that's the way He's chosen to reveal Himself to us. The metaphor that God chooses is not because He's trying to tap into our understanding of our earthly Father. The metaphor God uses is God was Father originally and earthly fathers were meant to reflect and reveal something of Him. Do you guys see the distinction there? The issue is not with God as father. The issue is with our earthly fathers who do a poor job sometimes of showing us the reality of who God the father really is. We need to at least do God this, the, the, give God the, the, the opportunity to reveal himself in the way that he's chosen to reveal himself. And the way God the father's chosen to reveal himself is how? Through his son. Jesus says, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. I struggled with the revelation of God as Father for many years until Jesus helped me understand that by knowing Him as loving and gracious and all-powerful and mighty and merciful and kind, that I knew, some, I knew the heart of the Father because if I've seen Him, I've seen the Father. Friends, do you, do you know that, that God, before He was creator of the heavens and the earth, before He was ruler over the universe, before He was judge over all mankind, do you know that God was a father who loved His Son? John chapter 17, verse 24, says this incredible verse. Jesus is praying and He says, he says God, you, you loved me before creation, before the creation of the world. That's who God is. God is a father. God is a father to us. And, and, I, and I only pray that as I carry on preaching, that, that the Spirit of God would, would, would minister to us all and bring, a, bring a, something of His healing so that we can hear and receive God as Father. So Paul is praying to God the Father. Secondly, Paul is praying to God the Father who, who chose us. Verse one, sorry, verse five of chapter one, this, this God, this Father chose us and, and called us and adopted us as His sons and daughters before the creation of the world. God has been looking forward with eager anticipation for each of your arrivals here on planet earth. Just like any earthly father or most earthly fathers, if they hear the news of them expecting a child, they're going to, they're going to get things ready. They're going to prepare the house. They're going to prepare the budget. They're going to prepare their, their, their marriage. They're going to prepare their hearts to receive this child into a family. Well, let me tell you, friends, God the Father has been waiting in eager anticipation for each of you to come to earth, to be born into this time and space so that he can, to begin, he can begin fathering you. That's the Father we serve. Paul is praying to the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, at chapter 1, verse 17. And because we are in Jesus, God is our glorious Father too. 
We, 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 we have the same privileges that Jesus has, the same ability that Jesus has to approach the glorious Father with confidence and assurance. We have that same privilege as well. Paul says in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 18, he says, um, he says, For through Jesus we now have access to the Father by one Spirit. Most people, I've used this illustration before, but I think it, it powerfully communicates this point. Most people would agree that, that our president, Barack Obama, is the most powerful man on the planet. And anyone who tries to gain an audience with him without invitation or without knowledge would be immediately shot or, or, or tasered, at, you know, at, at least tasered and arrested. I mean, any, can you imagine Obama walking down the street with a security guard and someone wants to rush and have a word with them? I mean, they'd be immediately arrested. And, but even though he's the most powerful man on the planet, probably, he has two daughters. And when his daughters are having a difficult night or maybe have a nightmare, they don't need to go through the security service to ask if they can go and speak to their father. They have access to the most powerful man on the planet. Why? Because he's their father. And that's how we can approach God even though he's all-knowing and all-powerful and almighty, through Jesus, we have confidence and the ability to access his presence at any moment or at any time. Paul is praying to the Father. Look at verse 16, who, who answers our prayers out of his glorious riches. I love that. God answers our prayers out of his glorious riches. Friends, when it comes to prayer, can I, can I, can I just take a moment and do a little Paul and t- go off on a tangent just for two minutes? But just to say this about prayer, it's so important that we understand the power of praise and declaration of who God is when it comes to prayer. If we don't start our prayer times by declaring the majesty and the glory and the goodness and the greatness of God, then all our prayer time becomes is, a, is a, an opportunity for us to worry out loud. So often we can approach prayer and we can be like, oh God, I've had this difficult day and my boss has done this and, and finances are just nowhere to be seen and my children are playing up. And before we've known it, all we've done is spend 15 minutes expressing our worries and concerns. The way we should approach prayer is to declare God's magnificence, declare God's greatness, declare God's majesty, and from that, it overflows naturally to say, God, let your majesty break into my children. Let your majesty break into my finances. Let your glory manifest itself in my place of work. So it's not wrong to attack or to pray those things, but start from the place of declaring the greatness and the, the magnificence of God. God is willing and he's able to change the status quo. And that word and is the important word. He's willing and able. He's not willing or able. He's willing and able. You know those Ford commercials? Have you seen those Ford commercials? Husband and wife drive out of a Ford dealership and one of them says, oh, this, 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 is, this car's got great mileage and it's a good ride. And then the other one says, yeah, that's way better than this car has great mi- mileage or it's a good ride. And then he says, yeah, that's like, a, that's like fixing an appliance using nuts or bolts. And then the, the scene kind of goes across and you see the guy trying to put a, an appliance together and he's standing and goes, honey, what do I do with these extra nuts and bolts? And then the appliance just kind of falls to pieces. God is not willing or able. God is willing and able. He's willing because he's our father. He's willing to answer our prayers because he's our father. But he's able to answer our prayers because he has glorious riches from which he can answer our prayers. I want you to look at verse 20. 
I, I spent um, Friday afternoon doing some preparation and I probably spent about three hours just meditating on verse 20. Nate was trying to leave the office and I, I accosted him and just told him my thoughts on verse 20. He was eager to leave and I kept him there for five minutes while I was preaching at him. But look at verse 20. To, to him, to God who is able to do immeasurably more or far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine. Give me, give me a few moments while I just unpack this particular verse because it's an incredible verse. It says in, the, in here that God is able to do things. God is able. God is able. Yes, we know God is able. God is at work. God is alive. We know God's a, a, alive. We, we're not worshiping a memory. We're not worshiping a God who was, but a God who, who was and is and still is to come. God is able. It doesn't just say that. It says God is able to do what we ask. God amazingly hears our prayers. God wants us to cry out to him. God wants us to to ask things of him. God delights in being the one who who meets our needs. But it goes further. It says, God is able to do what we ask and imagine. Have you ever ever had those moments where, where you've thought about praying something and you just didn't get to it? Maybe I'm being a little too vulnerable here. You, you thought about praying to it and you didn't get to it, but God answers the prayer anyway. Hey, have you had those moments? It's because God already knows the, 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 our heart's desire. He already knows the things that are on our heart and he delights to, to not only answer the things that we ask for, but even the things that we imagine. Goes on to say that God is able to do all that we ask or imagine. Have you ever tried to out-ask God or out-imagine God? Because if you can, let me tell you, that's not the kind of God I want to serve. I don't want to worship a God that I can out-ask or out-imagine. Nothing. Our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Our ways are not God's ways. But it goes on even more. It says God is able to do more than all we ask or imagine. God loves giving things in excess. The Bible doesn't just say that God loves us in 1 John. In 1 John 4, it says God lavishes his love on us. In Ephesians chapter 1, it doesn't just say that God pours out his grace on us or gives us his grace. It says God lavishes his grace upon us. But there's even more. God is, this sounds like an infomercial. God is, is not just able to do more than all we ask. God is able to do abundantly more than all we ask. When God gives us thing for, things, it tells us in Luke that his measure, the measure that he uses is the measure that is pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. That's the excess that God gives us things. This is, the, the word here is, is the word super in the, in the English is attached to, to the excess. So it's super excess. Imagine a, a, a fruit and, and grocery market, and then you get things called supermarkets. It's the, it's the bigger version of the market. That's essentially what Paul is saying here. God, God doesn't just give us things. He, he gives us things in super excess. But there's one more step even. Look at this. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ever ask or imagine. And here, Paul actually invents a Greek word. There's no such word as hyper-excess, but that's literally the English translation of the phrase Paul uses. God gives us things in hyper-excess. Not just a market, not just a supermarket, but a hypermarket. 
That's essentially what, what Paul is saying here. Grace and goodness not just abound, but they, they, they super, they, they, it's not even superabound. It hyperabounds. It's hyper excess. And friends, this is the key to answered prayer. Can I say, friends, this is what we need to grasp. Prayer is not about the quality or quantity of your prayer. Prayer is not about saying the right words. Prayer is not about following a formula. Prayer is not even about the amount of time that you spend. The, six, the, the, the key to prayer is understanding who you are praying to. The key to prayer is understanding that we are praying to, to God the Father, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ever ask or imagine. That's who Paul is praying to. That's who Paul wants us to understand whom we are praying to. All right, secondly, what does Paul pray for? Look at verse 16. Paul prays this, that God would, would strengthen us with power through or by his spirit in our inner being. Essentially what Paul is doing is he's, he's praying for an experience. He's praying that we would get to experience God. Now, some of you in this room might be quite nervous of, of, of that. I know there are many Christians in our city, many Christians in our nation alive today who are, who are very nervous at the concept that we can get to experience God. Things are thrown around like, oh, you're being far too emotional. God shouldn't, you know, enjoying God or experiencing God shouldn't be an emotional thing. You're just allowing your emotions to run wild. Can I suggest, generally speaking, we're not emotional enough. I think we could be way more emotional. I think we could be way more expressive. When we, when we understand the, the reality of, of, of what God is, is doing in our midst, let me say, friends, we need, to be, we need to be expressing our emotions a lot more. We do so every Sunday afternoon during football season when the Bears score a touchdown. Why can't we do it here on a Sunday morning? Acts chapter 2 talks about the, the fire of God being poured down from heaven. Do you think that happened without much emotion or experience? Or when it says in, in Romans chapter 8 that we are baptized with the, with, the, with the spirit of adoption and by the Holy Spirit we are able to cry out, Abba, Father. Can you cry out, Abba, Father, by saying, Oh, Father, you are so amazing. I love you with all of my heart. No, that's not crying out. Oh, God, you are incredible. I, I worship you and love you because you have transformed my life. That's what the Spirit of God enables us to do. Paul is praying that we would experience God, that all that, that he's taught up till now wouldn't just be good theology. It would be an experience. It would lead to an experience. Can I say all that good theology counts for nothing unless we experience God. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote this incredible, uh, uh, this in incredible chapter explaining about how, how theology and Christian belief and doctrine, how it relates to the Christian life. And he used the analogy of a map to a city. And, and he explains this. He says, he says theology and, and, and good sound doctrine to the Christian life is exactly like a map is to a city. So let me explain what, what he's trying to say. Imagine you'd never been to the city of Chicago. And, and I give you a map and you, you survey this map and you look and you, and you notice how the streets and the expressways and, and, and the neighborhoods and, and the loop and the, and the lake, how they all relate to and how they're all interconnected with one another. 
But studying that map and being familiar with that map, with that map is, is not in any way experiencing the sights and sounds and smells of Chicago. You have to, you have to physically be here to, to catch the heart of the city. And that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. As valuable and as important as theology and doctrine are, that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is to experience God. Now, now there are times when, when the map is necessary. When you're experiencing the city, you could be walking in a neighborhood and you suddenly become disorientated. So you need to refer to the map to reorientate yourself and to find where you need to go. But the map is not the experience. And this is what Paul is trying to drive home through this prayer. Friends, I, I've loved teaching the last six weeks going from Ephesians 1 through Ephesians 3. But let me tell you, if, it, if all it is is good theology, we've missed the heart of God. Paul wants us, I want us to experience God. For us to know that, that, that God, what it means to be in Christ. Not just a phrase that we throw around but something that we experience in our very hearts. I don't know if any of you have heard of the 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal. Anyone? I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. Blaise Pascal was a, a Christian philosopher. He was a philosopher. He was a, a, a physicist. He was an author. He was a mathematician. He was a real Renaissance man. And he was a, he was a devout Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ. And, and, and he got saved fairly early in his adult life. But but later on in his adult years, he had this incredible experience with God. When Blaise Pascal passed away, his friends were gathering his belongings together and they discovered his coat that he would wear most of the time. And into the seam of his coat, he had sewn a page that he had torn out of his journal. And I actually have seen a photograph. You can actually go online and you can see a photograph of, of this page. It's, it's, it was ripped out and folded up and put into, his, into the seam of, of his jacket because of the significance of, of an event that happened. And, and on that page, it says this. It says this. In the year 1654, Monday, November 23rd, from about half past 10 in the evening until about half past 12. And then the next line has got one word on it. And it's this word, all in capitals, Fire. And then underneath that, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not the God of the philosophers and the scholars. Certainty, joy, assurance, peace, joy, 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 tears of joy, submission, total and sweet, total surrender to Jesus Christ. Blaise Pascal used to worship the God of the philosophers and scholars until he had that experience of God, the fire of God falling down, and it changed his life. This is what Paul is praying that we would experience. This is what we need to pray that we would experience too. Where does Paul want God to, to impact us? Look at verse 16 and verse 17. It's, it's in our inner being. It's in our hearts. The word inner being and the word heart can be interchanged. or, or, or it's, a, it's describing the same thing. Heart, not meaning the, 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 the vessel that pumps blood, but meaning the, the seat of our will and emotions and intellect. And Paul is trusting that, that the power of God by the Holy Spirit would impact us in our inner man, where it, inf where it uh, infiltrates into our, into our thinking, where it infiltrates into our emotions, and it infiltrates into our will, into the way that we live. That's where change begins to happen. 
You guys know that it's possible to, to know something through intellect. It's possible to know something through what you've observed. Or it's possible to know something by what people have told you. That's not the kind of knowledge Paul is, is praying for. Paul is wanting us to experience or to know God when we've experienced him ourselves. I came across this really cool tweet by one of my favorite uh, the, the guys that I follow called Church Curmudgeon. My children tell me I'm a bit of a curmudgeon, so I like to follow this guy. He's a bit of a grumpy, grumpy old man at times. And, and he says this, he describes this about coffee. He says, he wrote this little tweet poem, grown, harvested, roasted, and ground, pressed, heated, steamed, and drowned, brewed into a glorious brown beverage of awakening. I love that. I love that. So the point is this, you can, you can read that poem and you can know something about coffee. You can know something about the espresso and, and how it, this, it is this golden nectar of deliciousness and, and, and all of those, that good stuff. But let me tell you, when you take that first sip of an espresso, man, you realize that you didn't really know anything about coffee until you've experienced that. That's what Paul is driving home to us about God. Not that we would just know him intellectually. Not that we would just know him by what people have told us about him. But we would have a personal encounter with him that changes the way we think. Psalm uh, 34 doesn't say, believe that God is good. What does Psalm 34 say? Taste and see that the Lord is good. We, it's almost as if Paul is saying we, we need our, our hearts or our inner being or our inner man to be sensitized by the Holy Spirit so that we can receive truth. I don't know if, if you remember a few weeks ago when I preached on Ephesians 1 and I spoke about that Paul's prayer that, the hearts, that, that our hearts would be enlightened. Remember that, that phrase? That our hearts would be enlightened. And I used the analogy of a camera shutter and how Paul is praying that the, our hearts would open up and the, and the light of God would, would come rushing in so that the image, the image of God's truth would be able to impact our hearts. Well, Paul is, is praying something very similarly, in a very similar fashion. I'm going to stretch some of you with your age, but believe it or not, before the age of digital cameras, there used to be something called photographic film and photographic paper. Cameras weren't always digital. I don't know if you know that, but... But, but what would happen was the film or the camera paper needed to be sensitized by certain chemicals in order for, for, the, for when the light comes in, for that film to capture the image. That's, what Paul is, is, that's essentially what Paul is praying for. That, 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 that the Spirit of God would, would, would flood our hearts. That our hearts would be sensitive to the truth of God. So that God's Word can, can take root and it can start to impact our, our hearts and our emotions and our, our, our intellect and our will. Paul says it's important that we, that we grasp. Look at verse, uh, where are we? Verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have the power to grasp the dimensions of God. That word, friends, that word grasp in the Greek, is not believe. It doesn't mean to believe. It's, it's a far more violent word than that. It's a far more forceful word than that. It literally means to, to overpower something or to, to seize something or to take hold of something or to wrestle something. 
And, and that's what Paul is, is praying for. He's praying that we wouldn't just believe these truths that are already true of Christians, but that we would grasp them. We would seize them. We would take hold of the reality that God is dwelling in our hearts by, by, by Jesus Christ. We would take hold and grasp the reality of God's length, the length and breadth and depth and height of God's love. That we would grasp the reality that we are filled to the, to the measure of all the fullness of God. I'm actually a little reluctant, and I'm not going to unpack those verses 17 through 19 anymore. Because I think if we do that, we can so easily start to approach this text with a formulaic or, 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 or a kind of a give me a method kind of approach. Well, I, I want to do this point, and if I do this point, then I'm guaranteed this, and if I do this, then I'm guaranteed that. That's not Paul's heart. Don't, don't view this text as, as different stages of maturity in, in Jesus. This is not, you know, don't imagine it this way. Three friends gathered together, and the one friend says, oh my goodness, I had an incredible encounter with God last night. And his friends are like, really, what happened? Well, I grasped the reality that Jesus Christ dwells in my heart. And then the second friend says, oh my goodness, really, is that all? Well, well, I've not only done that, but, but I've come to understand the length and breadth and depth and height of God's love. And the third friend says, oh, you guys are absolute amateurs. You guys are baby Christians. I understand what it, mean, what it means to be filled to the full measure of Jesus Christ. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying you progress from one stage to the next to the next. My, my personal take, verse 17 through 19, is Paul just reflecting on what it means to be filled with the presence of God. Just like a painter would, would approach a, a, a project and he or she would use different colors or, or different techniques to, to arrive at the final picture. I think that's what Paul is doing. He's, he's praying for this experience of God. And, and, that, and, then, and then he understands, he, he's beginning to meditate on the love of God. Sometimes the love of God is, is, is expressed through us realizing that God dwells in our hearts by Jesus Christ. That word dwell doesn't mean to pop in for tea. That word dwell means literally to settle down and to, and to create a home. Or sometimes maybe Paul is, is also reflecting on the love of God, the, the, the length of God's love from eternity past to eternity future. The width of God's love, that, that no one is excluded from it. The, 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 the depths of God's love, that, that Jesus himself went to the very depths of, of, of being forsaken by his Father so that we, you and I don't have to be. The height of God's love, that God lifts us and seats us at the right hand of the Father in glory. Maybe Paul's reflecting a little bit about, about being filled to the measure of the fullness of God. I, I don't understand what that fully means. Other than to say that, that I know that, in, that according to the scriptures, that's what I should be experiencing. But I know that I'm not experiencing it. And until I do experience it, I'm going to keep on praying for it. Paul wants us to experience God. I'm nearly finished. And then he ends this incredible prayer with, with just praise to the Father. Look at verse 20. He can't help himself. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work in us. And then verse 21. To him be the glory in the church and in Jesus Christ through, throughout all generations forever and ever. I'm not finished. Okay. 
Um, verse 21, to, to him be glory in the church and, and in, G, in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. That's, that's what we want, isn't it? We want to see Jesus glorified in this church. Friends, I, I, don't, want, I don't want this church to be built around anyone other than Jesus. It's, it's incredibly sad to see the Swartz and Willoughby's go. But they, they, they leave as friends. They don't leave as, 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 the, as the ones who are around whom this church is built. There might come a day when Debs and I leave. And, and, and if that happens, I don't want this, if this church falls to pieces because we leave, we haven't built this church around Jesus Christ. This church needs to be centered around, not around ministry gifts, not around charismatic personalities, not around friendships, as important as all of those things are. If this church is not built around the person of Jesus Christ, we have missed out on building church the way God wants us to build church. I love the fact that we have excellence in our worship and excellence in our setup and excellence in our children's ministry. But that's not what we can rely on to attract people in this city. It needs to be Jesus Christ, him and only him. All right, three little things to end up with. How should we respond? Number one, three things that we can do in response to this. I want to say, number one, seek God for this experience daily. Pray this prayer daily. Not, not as a formula, but just, God, I want to experience you. I want to experience you. Holy Spirit, empower me. Holy Spirit, impact my inner man by your power. Number one, seek God daily for his experience of love and power. Secondly, I want to say this, kneel to the Father. That word kneel or bow to the Father to me speaks of submission. It speaks of authority that God has. It speaks of the fact that he is God and we're not. It speaks of the fact that God in his word says he desires obedience more than he desires sacrifice. Meaning God desires our our submission more than he does desire our religious responsibilities or duties. Friends, God is not looking for perfect people. God's looking for yielded people. God's looking for people who are willing to submit their entire lives to him, warts and all, mistakes and all. God is not not thrown by our sin. God is not sickened by our sin. God is not put off by our sin. God can work on our sin and work with us in spite of our sin. But one thing that does resist God, one thing that does cause us to, to, to build, a, build a wall between us and God is when we refuse to submit areas of our lives to God. How can we say, God, fill me with your power, but we knowingly have areas in our lives that we haven't submitted to his lordship? How can we say, God, I want your power and I want your glory, but I know that there are parts of my life that I just refuse to submit to him. And I'm not saying God is looking for perfection, friends. I'm just saying God is looking for hearts that say, God, I'm struggling in this area. I'm addicted to pornography. I'm struggling with my finances. I'm in a relationship that I shouldn't be. And it's, and it's difficult and it's tough, but I'm bringing it under your authority for you to help me. That's what the Bible is calling us to do. Kneel to the Father. And then lastly, thirdly, we need to do this in community. Look at verse 18. That we may have the power together with all the saints to grasp the love of God. And Paul has been driving this point over and over again. And friends, in our individualistic society, we need to drive this point. We need to fight this issue over and over again. Our society is trying to isolate us, and it is contrary to God's heart. 
We are being built together. Not, not in, God is not saving individuals and leaving them as individuals. God is saving individuals so that he, they can be knitted together into the family of God. We limit the power of God to the degree to which we isolate ourselves from the rest of church family. I'm going to pray and then hand over to, to Hugh. Father, I, I, I just I, I want to ask, Lord, that as we come to the end of this incredible um, uh, uh, truth, this, this, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Lord, I, I want to ask in Jesus' name that we would leave here today knowing that the, in the depths of our hearts the truth of what Paul has been teaching us. Father, I pray against any intellectual approach to these passages, but ask that, that by your Spirit, you would empower us with an opportunity to encounter you, Father. I want to pray for lives to be touched and changed because our hearts have been sensitized by the Spirit to receive the truth of your Word. Holy Spirit, even now, would you, would you come? Would you come and minister to us? Would you come and, 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 and encounter us? Would you pour yourself out upon us? Would you, would, you, would you break into the hardness of our hearts? And would you cause our hearts just to be softened before you? Father, if there are any areas in our lives that we are holding back from you, Lord, today, now, we want to bring those areas before you and say, Father, here it is. Here I am. Everything submitted to you. Jesus, won't you just move in power? Won't you touch our hearts? Those of us, Lord, who, who struggle so with the, with the concept of worshiping a father, worshiping you as father, Lord, I pray for healing in our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would overwhelm our hurt and our pain with your love. Where there are scars, where there are, where there are bruises, would you, would you pour out the Spirit onto our hearts to, to bring wholeness and healing. We want to be free from bitterness. We want to be free from unforgiveness. We want to be able to love you, Lord, in the way that you've revealed yourself to us.